Chapter One of Aaron's Rod. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Aaron's Rod by D. H. Lawrence. Chapter One, Part A The Blue Ball. There was a large, brilliant evening star in the early twilight, and underfoot the earth was half frozen. It was Christmas Eve. Also, the war was over and there was a sense of relief that was almost a new menace. A man felt the violence of the nightmare released now into the general air. Also there had been another wrangle among the men on the pit-bank that evening. Aaron Sisson was the last man on the little black railway line, climbing the hill home from work. He was late because he had attended a meeting of the men on the bank. He was secretary to the miners' union for his colliery, and had heard a good deal of silly wrangling that left him nettled. He strode over a stile, crossed two fields, strode another stile, and was in the long road of Collier's dwellings. Just across was his own house. He had built it himself. He went through the little gate, up past the side of the house to the back. There he hung a moment, glancing down the dark wintry garden. "'My father! My father's come!' cried a child's excited voice, and two little girls, in white pinafores, ran out in front of his legs. "'Father!' "'Shall you set the Christmas tree?' they cried. "'We've got one.' "'Afore I have my dinner?' he answered amiably. "'Set it now. Set it now. We got it through Fred Elton. Where is it?' The little girls were dragging a rough, dark object out of a corner of the passage into the light of the kitchen door. "'It's a beauty!' exclaimed Millicent. "'Yes, it is,' said Marjorie. "'I should think so,' he replied, striding over the dark bow. He went to the back kitchen to take off his coat. "'Set it now, father, set it now,' clamoured the girls. "'You might as well. You've left your dinner so long. You might as well do it now before you have it,' came a woman's plangent voice out of the brilliant light of the middle room. Aaron Sisson had taken off his coat and waistcoat and his cap, and he stood bareheaded in his shirt and braces, contemplating the tree. "'What am I to put it in?' he queried. He picked up the tree and held it erect by the topmost twig. He felt the cold as he stood in the yard coatless, and he twitched his shoulders. "'Isn't it a beauty?' repeated Millicent. "'Aye, lopsided, though.' "'Put something on you two, came the woman's high imperative voice from the kitchen. "'We aren't cold,' protested the girls from the yard. "'Come and put something on,' insisted the voice. The man started off down the path. The little girls ran grumbling indoors. The sky was clear. There was still a crystalline, non-luminous light in the under-air. Aaron rummaged in his shed at the bottom of the garden, and found a spade and a box that was suitable. Then he came out to his neat, bare, wintry garden. The girls flew towards him, putting the elastic of their hats under their chins as they ran. The tree and the box lay on the frozen earth. The air breathed dark, frosty, electric. "'Hold it up straight,' he said to Millicent, as he arranged the tree in the box. She stood silent and held the top bough. He filled in around the roots. When it was done and pressed in, he went for the wheelbarrow. The girls were hovering excited round the tree. He dropped the barrow and stooped to the box. The girls watched him hold back his face. The boughs pricked him. "'Is it very heavy?' asked Millicent. "'Aye,' he replied with a little grunt. Then the procession set off the trundling wheelbarrow, the swinging hissing tree, the two excited little girls. They arrived at the door. Down went the legs of the wheelbarrow on the yard. The man looked at the box. "'Where are you going to have it?' he called. "'Put it in the back kitchen,' cried his wife. 
You'd better have it where it's going to stop. I don't want to hawk it about. Put it on the floor against the dresser, father. Put it there, urged Millicent. You come and put some paper down, then, called the mother hastily. The two girls ran indoors. The man stood contemplative in the cold, shrugging his uncovered shoulders slightly. The open inner door showed a bright linoleum on the floor, and the end of a brown sideboard on which stood an aspidistra. Again with a wrench Aaron Sisson lifted the box. The tree pricked and stung. His wife watched him as he entered staggering with his face averted. "'Mind where you make a lot of dirt,' she said. He lowered the box with a little jerk onto the spread-out newspaper on the floor. Soil scattered. "'Sweep it up,' he said to Millicent. His ear was lingering over the sudden clutching hiss of the tree-boughs. A stark white incandescent light filled the room and made everything sharp and hard. In the open fireplace a hot fire burned red. All was scrupulously clean and perfect. A baby was cooing in a rockerless wicker cradle by the hearth. The mother, a slim, neat woman with dark hair, was sewing a child's frock. She put this aside, rose, and began to take her husband's dinner from the oven. "'You stopped confabbing long enough to-night,' she said. "'Yes,' he answered, going to the back kitchen to wash his hands. In a few minutes he came and sat down to his dinner. The doors were shut close, but there was a draught, because the settling of the mines under the house made the doors not fit. Aaron moved his chair to get out of the draught, but he still sat in his shirt and trousers. He was a good-looking man, fair and pleasant, about thirty-two years old. He did not talk much, but seemed to think about something. His wife resumed her sewing. She was acutely aware of her husband, but he seemed not very much aware of her. "'What were they on about to-day, then?' she said. "'About the throw-in. And did they settle anything?' "'They're going to try it, and they'll come out if it isn't satisfactory.' "'The butties won't have it, I know,' she said. He gave a short laugh and went on with his meal. The two children were squatted on the floor by the tree. They had a wooden box, from which they had taken many little newspaper packets, which they were spreading out like wares. "'Don't open any. We won't open any of them until we've taken them all out, and then we'll undo them one in our turns. Then we'll both undo equal,' Millicent was saying. "'Yes, we'll take them all out first, re-echoed Marjorie. "'And what are they going to do about job Arthur Freer? Do they want him?' A faint smile came on her husband's face. "'Nay, I don't know what they want. Some of them want him. Whether they're a majority, I don't know.' She watched him closely. "'Majority! I'd give him majority. They want to get rid of you and make a fool of you, and you want to break your heart over it. Strikes me you need something to break your heart over.' He laughed silently. "'Nay,' he said, "'I'll never break my heart.' You'll go nearer to it over that than over anything else, just because a lot of ignorant monkeys want a monkey of their own sort to do the union work, and jabber to them, and they want to get rid of you, and you eat your heart out about it. More fool you, that's all I say. More fool you. If you cared for your wife and children half what you care about your union, you'd be a lot better pleased in the end. But you care about nothing but a lot of ignorant colliers who don't know what they want except it's more money just for themselves. Self, 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 that's all it is with them, and ignorance. You'd rather have self without ignorance, he said, smiling finely. I would, if I've got to have it. But what I should like to see is a man that has thought for others, and isn't all self and politics. Her color had risen, her hand trembled with anger as she sewed. A blank look had come over the man's face, as if he did not hear or heed any more. He drank his tea in a long draught, 
wiped his moustache with two fingers and sat looking abstractedly at the children. They had laid all the little packets on the floor, and Millicent was saying, "'Now I'll undo the first, and you can have the second. I'll take this.' She unwrapped the bit of newspaper and disclosed a silvery ornament for a Christmas tree, a frail thing like a silver plum, with deep rosy indentations on each side. "'Oh!' she exclaimed. "'Isn't it lovely?' Her fingers cautiously held the long bubble of silver and glowing rose, cleaving to it with a curious, irritating possession. The man's eyes moved away from her. The lesser child was fumbling with one of the little packets. "'Oh!' a wail went up from Millicent. "'You've taken one! You didn't wait!' Then her voice changed to a motherly admonition, and she began to interfere. "'This is the way you do it. Look, let me help you.' But Marjorie drew back with resentment. "'Don't, Millicent, don't!' came the childish cry. But Millicent's fingers itched. At length Marjorie had got out her treasure, a little silvery bell with a glass top hanging inside. The bell was made of frail, glassy substance, light as air. "'Oh, the bell!' rang out Millicent's clanging voice. "'The bell! It's my bell! My bell! It's mine! Don't break it, Marjorie! Don't break it, will you?' Marjorie was shaking the bell against her ear, but it was dumb, it made no sound. "'You'll break it, I know you will. You'll break it. Give it me!' cried Millicent, and she began to take away the bell. Marjorie set up an expostulation. "'Let her alone,' said the father. Millicent let go as if she had been stung, but still her brassy, impudent voice persisted. "'She'll break it! She'll break it! It's mine!' "'You undo another,' said the mother, politic. Millicent began with hasty itching fingers to unclose another package. "'Ah!' "'Ah, oh, mother, my peacock! Ah, oh, my peacock! My green peacock!' Lavishly she hovered over a sinuous, greenish bird, with wings and tail of spun glass, pearly, and body of deep electric green. "'It's mine, my green peacock! It's mine because Marjorie's had one wing off, and mine hadn't! My green peacock that I love! I love it!' She swung it softly from the little ring on its back. Then she went to her mother. "'Look, mother, isn't it a beauty?' "'Mind the ring doesn't come out,' said her mother. "'Yes, it's lovely.' The girl passed on to her father. "'Look, father, don't you love it?' "'Love it?' he re-echoed, ironical over the word love. She stood for some moments, trying to force his attention. Then she went back to her place. Marjorie had brought forth a golden apple, red on one cheek, rather garish. "'Oh!' exclaimed Millicent, feverishly, instantly seized with desire for what she had not got, indifferent to what she had. Her eye ran quickly over the packages. She took one. "'Now!' she exclaimed loudly to attract attention. "'Now! What's this? What's this? What will this beauty be?' With finicky fingers she removed the newspaper. Marjorie watched her wide-eyed. Millicent was self-important. "'The blue ball!' she cried in a climax of rapture. "'I've got the blue ball!' She held it gloating in the cup of her hands. It was a little globe of hardened glass of a magnificent full dark blue color. She rose and went to her father. "'It was your blue ball, wasn't it, father?' "'Yes.' "'And you had it when you were a little boy, and now I have it when I'm a little girl.' "'I,' he replied dryly. "'And it's never been broken all those years?' "'No, not yet.' "'And perhaps it never will be broken.' To this she received no answer. "'Won't it break?' she persisted. "'Can't you break it?' "'Yes, if you hit it with a hammer,' he said. "'Ah!' she cried. "'I don't mean that. I mean if you just drop it. It won't break if you drop it, will it?' "'I dare say it won't.'" End of chapter 1
Part A.